comes from Exodus 20, 1 through 11. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we come to you now, Lord, we praise you and we thank you for this day and this time that we have to come together and to worship you, um, to be in the presence of you, Lord, with all these um, people. We pray that you will lift us up, Lord. We pray that you will come and be present here today and that I pray that you'll be with Alan as he brings the word and that we have ears to hear it, Lord, and we pray and continue prayers for Israel, Lord, for your protection over your people, and that um, that you will be with them, Lord, and guide them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are um, continuing our look at the book of Exodus. Um, and as we're working through this book, just taking excerpts of it from here and there, we're trying to understand for ourselves the lessons that God was teaching Israel. And that is, now that you are physically free from Egypt, how do we spiritually free you from the residual enslavements that are still taking place in your hearts? And see, that's the same issue that we have. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, we have been rescued from our sin. It has been taken away as far as the east is from the west. But now that we're free, how do we live like we're free? How do we act like we're free? How do we go about this? See, God rescued his people from their slavery in Egypt. They were completely free from the control of the Egyptians. But then immediately in our first week, we saw that God takes them on what could best be described as a navigational nightmare by diverting them into the desert and boxing them in by the Red Sea. And while he does that, he intentionally hardens the heart of Pharaoh to come after them and bring them back. And at the time we asked, well, why does God do that? Why didn't he take the freeway out of Egypt into the Promised Land? Why this diversion? And we said it was because even though they are physically 
out from under the control of their Egyptian slave masters, spiritually the slavery was still there in their hearts. And God was trying to work deep within their hearts that their rescue ultimately comes from the provision of God and not from their circumstances going the way that they wanted. See, he was trying to show them that the true rescue that they really needed and wanted comes not just from being out of the slavery of Egypt, but that ultimate freedom comes from the presence of God, who alone has the ability to free their hearts from needing their circumstances to go well. And then last week we saw how the people, though they had miraculously been delivered by God from Egypt, you remember the ten uh, plagues that they had, they had all seen, they had witnessed the parting of the Red Sea, walking through, I mean, imagine that one emblazoned in your memory. And, and despite all of that, they still had the slavery of mistrust in their hearts. And so they whined and they complained to God about not having any food to eat. And so once again, God comes and says, okay, let me teach you guys what it means to be free, free to trust in me, no matter how overwhelming your circumstances might appear to you to be. And so he provides them with a daily portion of bread to fall from heaven in the form of this strange manna. And you see, this was more than God simply providing uh, something for his people to eat, but he was teaching them, guys, now that you're free from Egypt, you need to recognize that you're still enslaved to your circumstances. Because just look at how you are remembering your time back there in Egypt. Though you were enslaved, you were beaten by your taskmasters, though many of your children were ordered to be killed as they were being born, somehow you still think it's better to go back there. Because at least it was predictable. At least we had a steady ration of food. At least we knew what was coming. In other words, back there we didn't have to trust. The food was always just there. But out here we have to trust that the same God who provided for us yesterday is still going to provide for us today. And can you relate to that struggle? Can't you see this very same heart of, of slavery at work in your own heart? Where we can say, surely, yes, God took care of me yesterday. I know he was faithful. I know he was gracious. I praise him for it. But what about today? What about this overwhelming circumstance? I, I, there's no way he's going to be able to get me out of this one. And listen, we do this all the time. We gladly exchange the freedom of God's promise that in Jesus we have everything we need for the safer ground of, well, it can't hurt to add a little bit of good works into the mix just in case grace isn't enough. It, it can't hurt to put a nice buffer of money around my life. I know it won't fix anything, but I feel safer. I know it, it, it can't hurt to maybe throw a little worry into the mix when things start to fall apart. I know God is in charge, but when I worry, it makes me feel like I've got at least a little bit of say, control into what's going on here. And so we always want to go back because slavery is predictable. Slavery is manageable. Slavery is controllable. And God is anything but that. <clears throat> As C.S. Lewis put it, he's not safe, but he's good. And so God has to teach us over and over and over again. And as we said, very often through the painful circumstances of life that we don't like. Because it's in the hard times that God strips away our self-reliance and slowly builds within us a growing trust that God is good and that he can be trusted 
even out there in the great unknown. Now, today we're going to come to the place where God gives his people the law, the Ten Commandments. We're just looking at a portion of it. And what he's teaching us here is how we can be free to worship. We can be freed from the worship of things that enslave us, and we can be freed into the worship of God that we were designed for. So let me just, let's get into this to see what we mean. I, I think it's, it's sinful human nature that tends to use the law of God in, in all the wrong ways, in ways that end up enslaving us instead of freeing us. See, on the one hand, you have um, what we might call religious fundamentalists who view the law as something to beat. Right? It, the law is really our enemy, but if I can just keep it, if I can just discipline myself better, even if I have to use guilt and shame to motivate better behavior, then it won't be hanging its head over me. And I'll be able to, to whip it. But if I succeed, it creates smug, self-righteous people who think they're keeping up and always looking down on everybody else. And, or it, it creates defeated Christians who aren't keeping up because they're constantly falling short of these commands. But on the other hand, you've got people in the world who hate the law. And they see the law as only a restriction uh, that's given for control. Men trying to control women, whites trying to control blacks, employers trying to control the working class, and on and on and on it goes. And so for them, for the world, very often, you're not free until you can throw off all the constraints of the, those rules and regulations and chart your own course. But you see, both of these groups, as opposed as they are to everything else morally, they agree that they hate the law. They see the law as a negative thing that's getting in the way of life. But God is showing his people here that the right role and purpose of the law is to bring us freedom, true freedom into our hearts. And so I want to start by asking the question, how can the law of God bring us freedom? Because you see, again, in our culture, it just doesn't make sense because for us, true freedom often means breaking the law, right? Not keeping it being free from any constraints, just doing your own thing. And in our Appalachian religious culture, true freedom comes from beating the law, being better at keeping it than other people are. And for the most part, the only time that people are concerned about keeping the law is when they're afraid of the consequences, whether it's the, the secular fear of being pulled over by the police or being arrested or having your parents ground you or your teacher putting you in detention or whether it's the religious fear that maybe God won't answer my prayers. Or maybe he won't give me a good day. Or, or even worse, maybe he's just going to throw in the towel and give up on me this time. We always are driven by a fear of the consequences. And we don't find that we actually love the law. And we're certainly not very excited about it. But I want you to notice here how God introduces his law. Verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. And li literally what he says here is, is not that he is a Lord, but the Lord, because he uses the personal name of, of God here, Yahweh. Uh, a name where back in Genesis, he merely defined it as meaning I am, right? When he was speaking to Moses from the burning bush, I am that I am. But now he's beginning to fill that term with meaning. And it's a very intimate, personal name that he only gives to his children to use in talking with him. 
And so basically what God is saying here is, guys, if God really is the creator and the sustainer of this world, then the rules that I'm about to give you to govern that world and to govern yourselves are not merely good principles to strive for, but it's the very essence of who I made you to be. This is what he designed us for. The, the Ten Commandments are really our, our spiritual DNA. Uh, think of it this way. Imagine someone buys a new car, and, and, and the person's attitude is, listen, nobody tells me how to run my car, right? I don't care about your old-fashioned rules for how to take care of a car. I'll do it my way. And, and let's just say that this person hates the idea of uh, a fossil fuel so much that they decide, I'm going to put clean water in my gas tank, and I'm going to put maple syrup in place of oil because I just don't want to mess with the environment. Now, he's perfectly free to do that if he wants to. No one's going to stop them. They're not going to be arrested for those kinds of choices. But what's going to happen to the car? It's going to break, right? Because the, the rules of the owner's manual are far more than somebody's arbitrary rules to squash all of his fun or to prop up the oil industry in some great conspiracy. But it's actually part of the design of how the car is made. And if you want the car to last, and if you want the car to function the way it's supposed to, then you've got to follow the rules of the owner's manual. And you see, God is saying it's the same thing here. I mean, I didn't just sit around and think up rules that were, would ruin all of your fun or make your life boring and self-righteous, but I'm giving you these rules because it's your owner's manual. It's how you were designed. And when you live according to those rules, you'll actually experience a freedom of being all that you were designed to be, that you'll never find out there in the world. And you see, that's what God is starting to get at when he gets to verses 3 and 4, the first command, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. And you see, by saying that, what God is telling us is, guys, you were not designed for anything in this world to define you. You weren't made for anything in this world to bring you validation as a person. All of these things are incapable of bringing you life. See, life is full of good things and beautiful things, but everything in this life was designed to be kind of like a huge mural that are pictures constantly pointing you to the real joy and the true satisfaction that's behind all of it, which is God. Listen, all the things that this world can actually do is create in you a longing for something, but they can't satisfy that longing. They can create desire, but they can't fulfill that desire. You know, which tells you that you must be, have been made for things like that, but they're only pictures that can point you to it. They never satisfy. C.S. Lewis put this so well, and I didn't put this in there, um, Lyle, so you can't find this, but C.S. Lewis says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And that is just so true. All the things around us remind us there's love, there's hope, there's joy, there's beauty, but they point us to it. If we put our hopes in them, they disappoint us over and over and over again. And listen, when you turn to the images of God in this world instead of the real thing, they will enslave you every time. See, for example, let's try to get practical here. If, if you don't know who you are as a person unless people appreciate you and tell you what a great person that you are, you will become addicted to the opinions of other people, right? 
Because now they're not just opinions anymore. You've allowed that to become your source of life. And so their opinion now controls you. You're enslaved to it. If you're like the Israelites here and you can't feel secure in this life unless you can control all the negative forces out there that can rob you of your money, of your food, of your security, you will become addicted to needing your life to go the way that you want to. And you'll freak out with anxiety every time life takes a turn that you didn't want because you've allowed your circumstances to determine your happiness and your security and you're enslaved to them. Listen, you can even use Christianity and morality as an enslavement. If you look at God's law here as a way to validate yourself before God and before other people. See, if you look at the law of God and you say, listen, if I can just obey this better than most people... If I could just have my life looking pure on the outside, if I could just be a good enough Christian, then God will answer my prayers. Then people will respect me. You will become addicted to your own religious performance. And you'll constantly be comparing yourself in harsh judgment against the performance of everybody else. Listen, everybody turns to something to bring them validation. Everybody turns to something to bring them comfort. Everybody turns to something to bring a predictable life that you can manage. And everything that we turn to enslaves us, it controls us, and it will demand more and more and more of you until it consumes you. It's obvious in things like drugs and alcohol, we can see it physically happening, but it happens with everything that way. What things are functioning as a God in your life right now? See, I'm not asking if you know who the real God is, but functionally, what things are you turning to right now? To feel better about yourself? To be able to a quiet, a noisy conscience and say, well, at least I'm not this. At least I don't do that. Because, listen, this is what God is offering to us here. A freedom from the idols that enslave us. And a freedom for the things that we were designed for. And if you view, view the Ten Commandments as merely a bunch of rituals and rules to follow or, or maybe even hoops that God is making you jump through in order to prove your loyalty to Him, even your religion will enslave you as an idol. But you see, God is telling us here that's not the purpose of the law, not at all. But it's our owner's manual. It's a manual to describe the way we were designed. And therefore, it's a guide to freedom. It's a, it's a guide to, to joy and contentment. See, God says, I am the Lord. I am your creator. I have designed you, and I know what you need. I know what will bring you freedom, because I made you. And see, when you find yourself angry or fearful or, or stressed out, don't ask yourself, how, how can I deal with this stress? How can I make this problem go away? No, ask yourself, what are these feelings revealing about the little gods that I'm trying to serve right now that are making me feel so stressed and anxious and afraid. What's really controlling me? I mean, listen, it is so easy to blame our circumstances on everything, right? Because th there's always a crisis behind our fears, right? There's always a problem that's there. But God is showing us here that these circumstances are merely an opportunity to reveal to us what's already inside that you just don't trust God unless you can see a way out. That you can't relax unless you have some level of control. 
And so he's using these circumstances not only to reveal us to us what we're resting our, our, our hope and our, and our deliverance in, but also he's showing us how inept they are because they always fail. In the end, we're always stressed out. We're still afraid. It hasn't gone away. The, the mountain in front of us is still looming. And so he's reminding us here, guys, you don't have to freak out when something comes along that messes with your plans. You don't have to blow up in anger when somebody crosses you because I am your hope. I am your deliverance. And I've got this. Will you trust me? Listen, if God created you, then the only way to live a fully happy life is to live within your design. And when you start to view the law that way, it brings freedom and not restriction. Now, secondly, I want us to move on to see here that if we're really going to be people who uh, keep God's law, it, it has to flow from grace and not from duty. In, in our culture, that's about the only way people view obeying the law. It's duty. It's obligation. You must. You've got to keep God off your back. But I want you to notice here that God preface, prefaces the giving of all of these Ten Commandments with these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, why would God be recounting history as a motivation for obeying the law? In fact, if you look at the rest of the Old Testament, more than 30 times God quotes these very same words as he calls his people to obedience over and over and over again. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who rescued you from the land of slavery. Why does God do that with history? And I've used this illustration from Charles Spurgeon before, but since he's dead, I can get away with it. He won't sue me. Um, but it's also helpful, um, and so I want to use it. And he tells the story um, of a man who was a gardener. And one day he decided to bring his best prized carrot to offer to uh, his king as a gift. And the king was so impressed with the size of the carrot and the generosity of the man that he ordered the man be given an, an additional acre to add to his garden so he could produce even more. And there was a nobleman there at court who raised horses and he thought to himself, goodness, if you can get an acre of ground for just a carrot, imagine what you can get for a horse. And so the next day he brings into the king as a gift his prized stallion. And the king merely says, thanks, I appreciate it. And the man just stood there dumbfounded. And the king noticed his reaction and said, listen, the man yesterday gave me his carrot. But today you gave yourself the horse. And it's a great illustration of motivation. One gave generously out of love for his king, while the other gave selfishly out of love for himself. And what am I going to get out of this? And you see, I think that's the point here. Are you obeying God out of love for him? Or are you obeying God in order to get something from him? See, religious people tend to obey God, and to be quite honest, I think often far better than genuine Christians do, because your life depends on it. But, but they're actually just using God to get the things they really want. It's not really obedience. And God is simply the path that I have to go through in order to get the things that I most want. And whatever that it is beneath their obedience, it's their real God. It's the thing they're truly serving. And you see, by prefacing the giving of the Ten Commandments with a recounting of history, look, God will say, guys, look what I did for you. 
And he wasn't saying, look what I did for you, now you owe me. But he was saying, remember how I freed you from slavery. Now go live like you're free. Go act like you're free. Don't go back into slavery now that you're free because I am your God and you are loved and you are rescued and, and you've been saved and, and you don't obey in order to be saved. You're already saved. Don't you therefore want to obey me out of love? Listen, all law-keeping must flow from grace because if it doesn't, it's simply using God to get the things that you really want and therefore it's not actually law-keeping. It's just a game of manipulation where you resent God for making you jump through all his hoops to get what you really want. That's not law-keeping. It's, to be honest, it's the game of religion. And when people, uh, and when you hear people, for example, in our culture, let me step on a few toes here, um, pushing to make America moral again, praying for our nation so that God will bless us, making us a prosperous nation once again, I want you to hear what lies beneath that. It's not usually a longing for holiness, right? You know, what it usually is, is God, bring back your law, put us on top so that we can be powerful again, so that we can control the politics again, so that we can have security against our enemies, so that we can be the top dogs in culture. And that's the real idol beneath evangelical conservatism. Listen, if you don't love to obey God, but obey anyway, I mean, sure, it makes for a nicer world. You know, people aren't abusing each other as much. They aren't hurting each other as badly. But you're, you're not keeping the law of God at all. It's just a nicer world of people going to hell. But God is telling us here that it's his grace that is supposed to trigger our law keeping. Now, you remember that place in Galatians 2 where Peter was um, acting like a racist, um, he was uh, eating with Gentiles, um, feeling free to be able to do that until the Jews came around. And then he withdrew from eating with them, uh, and he treated them like they were unclean dogs, because that was the, the, the tradition. And what does Paul say to him? He confronts Peter, but not by saying, hey, Peter, you're breaking the racism rule. Stop it. And by the way, there is a law against racism, and, and he should stop it. But that's not what he says. What does he say? He says, Peter, did God love you and accept you because of your ethnicity? Then how in the world can you accept and reject others on the basis of theirs? See, he's using grace. And he's reminding him of God's mercy to root out the motivation beneath his racism. Because, Peter, you've been saved by grace. How can you treat anybody else with harsh judgment? Listen, if God is God, then he says, that makes me your creator and I designed you and therefore I have rescued you to be able to enjoy the new life that I designed you for. And therefore, listen to me now as I tell you how to live a free life. Here's your owner's manual. See, obedience always follows grace. I mean, it works that way in any relationship, right? I mean, you know this, guys, if you love and you serve your wife just to get sex, it won't be long before you don't get in anymore, right? If you befriend somebody just to feel better about yourself, it won't be long before you don't have a friend anymore. Because nobody wants to be treated as an object for your own advancement. Everybody wants to be loved just for who they are. And God is no different. 
He says, I love you and I've rescued you and therefore obey me so that you can enjoy the full beauty that I designed for you to live so that you would flourish. Listen, let me just push this on you a little bit. If you obey God out of duty and obligation or maybe out of fear for the consequences, sure, that can protect you from a heap of trouble in your life, but it does nothing to secure his favor or his forgiveness. And the more that you do that, the more it will turn you into a smug, self-righteous person. And listen, anytime that you know what is right to do, and you do it anyway, but it's, okay, I'll do it, but I don't want to. You're not living out of grace, but out of duty. And you're essentially asking, what is the least that I can do here to get by? You're just showing up and putting in an appearance. And you're forgetting that he saved you and that he's rescued you. And when that happens, the discipline that you need at the moment is not just to go ahead and do what's right, whether I want to or not. The discipline you need at that moment is to remember grace so that your heart will want to do the right thing from a right attitude. See, the discipline is not to do. The discipline is to remember his grace. And when you do what's right from a right heart attitude, your heart will sing for joy, for the joy that you were designed for. Listen, are you obeying God and doing the things he's asked of you out of resentment and duty or out of love and thankfulness for all that he's done for you? It's the difference between have to and want to. And therefore, it's the difference between joy and a burden of duty. Now, as we close here, we need to see how law-keeping is actually the way to change because, I mean, let's face it, simply remembering grace isn't always enough. The Israelites remembered God's grace. He's standing there saying, guys, remember, I just did the 10 plagues. Remember, I just parted the Red Sea, and they still didn't get it. So remembering grace isn't always enough. That remembering somehow has to push us into a love of law-keeping. So how does that happen? And I think the order of these commands here gives us a little hint of it, because if you think about it, all of the commands that come after the first one, commands 2 through 10, they, they all hang on this first one. In other words, you have to break the first commandment first before you break any other commandment. Because the basis of all the commandments is simply this, that there's something else that is currently functioning as your real God. For example, the command against coveting. You don't covet something unless you feel like you have to have it. That's my real God. That's why I'm coveting it. Or take the command about the Sabbath. You will not break that command unless you feel like there's something out there that you just have to have. And unless I break the Sabbath, it's going to slip away. So I've got to get it now. See, why do we lie? We lie because my heart tells me there's something I've got to have. And sometimes I'm going to be forced to lie if I really want to get it. Because that's my God. Adultery. Why, why would you commit adultery? If the love and affection of a forbidden person was something that your heart told you you've got to have, you'll do it. Every command that we break is because we've broken the first one. Every command we break is because some other God is functioning as your real God, functionally at that moment. So, so how do we actually change that? Because, you see, the main way that religion works, and frankly, the way our culture works, uh, the, from the way that we, the day that we were raised all the way through today, is to try to manipulate our outward behavior. 
And so for the religious person, the way that you change, well, let me just illustrate it here by one of my favorite scenes from an old Bob Newhart TV show. If you guys can figure out how to get that up. fear of being buried alive in a box. <laughs> I just, I start thinking about being buried alive and I begin to panic. Has, has, has anyone ever, ever tried to, to bury you alive in a box? No, no, but truly thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house. Anything boxy. So what, what you're saying is you're, uh, you're claustrophobic. Uh, yes. Yes, that's it. All right. Well, uh, let's go, Kasman. I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in, into your life. So I uh, write them down? Well, it, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most, we find most people can, uh, can remember. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay, you're, you're there. Stop it! <laughs> Stop it! Stop it? Yes, S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. <laughs> so, what are you saying? You know, it's funny, I, I, I say two simple words and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, this, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine, this is English. Stop it! So, I should just stop it. There you go. I mean, you, you, you don't want to go through life being scared of being buried alive in a box, do you? I mean, that sounds freak. <laughs> yes. Then stop it! I mean, it's been with me no, since no, 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 we, 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 we don't go there. Just, just stop <laughs> about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. It's gone back over, Lyle, so you can click on the next one. Listen, our whole world operates under that principle. Just stop it. That's how parents raise their kids. Just stop. Stop it. That's how everything that we've been taught our entire lives about how to deal with our problems is just stop it. But obviously that doesn't work because none of us have ever stopped. You know, listen, why do you lie? You lie because something has become so important to my life that I will lie to protect it. See, I don't just want it. I have to have it. it it's my God. It's, it's my identity. It's who I am. Say, I'm a reputable person and I can't let you know how badly I've messed up because then I wouldn't be a reputable person anymore. See, so how do we stop it? <laughs> and of course, grace has to be there first. We said that, but these people were recipients of God's grace and it still wasn't enough. It was an intellectual grace. It was a theoretical grace. <clears throat> the key here is that there has to be a heart change. See, the reality of the gospel has to so hit your heart that it is melted by grace instead of coerced by law. The grace that says everything that I need for life 
Everything that I need for joy and validation, everything that I need to know that I'm okay as a person, every requirement of every one of these commandments, Jesus has already done it for me. It's mine. It's true of me. See, listen to how the, the, the truth melts your heart. Paul tells us, for example, that Jesus was given a name that was above every other name. But he didn't try to protect that name. But he, he willingly gave it up. He let his name be dragged through the mud so that we could have a name that lasts forever. And as a result, no matter what things happen to you on this earth, you will be a beloved child of God for all eternity. In fact, as we sang earlier, Jesus tells us that our names are written on the palms of his hands so that he will never be able to forget you. And if Jesus lost his reputation for me, then I can risk losing the feeble reputation that I've built for him. In fact, I want to. See, there, there, there's a command not to steal. Why do we steal things? It's, it's always either greed or need, right? Either I have to have or I want to have. And if, and if Jesus was willing to lose all of his wealth that he actually had so that we could become rich, then all the reasons that I can justify for either need or greed are worthless compared to this. See, don't commit adultery. Being unfaithful to your spouse, any unfaithfulness, even in your, in your mind, is a violation. But if Jesus is your true spouse, if he is the true lover of your heart, it keeps you from putting too high of expectations on your spouse that they could never fulfill. And it keeps you from always wondering and wondering about somebody else over there. All right, don't, don't commit murder. And as we saw going through the Sermon on the Mount, that includes heart attitudes of any ill will against another person. And the only way to have the emotional wealth to forgive and not defend and protect yourself is to see that Jesus not only died for you, but he had to die for you. Because you're that messed up, which makes you humble. But on the other hand, he chose to do it willingly. You're that loved, which gives you the confidence to believe that you're a child of the king. And so now you don't have to go out and destroy somebody else to get life because you were given life and not destroyed when you deserved it. Listen, every command found here is fulfilled by Jesus for you. And listen to how he thinks of you right now. In verse 5 he says, For I am a jealous God. You know, sometimes it's hard for us to think of God as being jealous because, you know, for humans it's not possible to be jealous without sinning. Because jealousy says, I deserve better. Well, none of us deserve better. God does. He deserves all of your love. He deserves all of your worship. Only God can be jealous without sinning. And see, when you truly love somebody, you, you can't even imagine them in the arms of somebody else. It, it angers you. It, it sickens you. It, it enrages you. Because it just hurts too much to see them in the arms of anybody else. And God says here, that's exactly how I view you. None of your other idols can give you what I can give you. None of those idols will love you the way that I will love you. None of them will die for you. None of them desire what's best for you, but I do. And God is saying here is, I want you to be the main thing for me, and I want me to be the main thing for you. See, in human jealousy, it just kills the one who is rejected. But in God's jealousy, it's pure enough that he was willing to die to buy you back at the cost of his own life. Listen, only in Jesus do we see the love of God displayed like this. His life lived for you. 
his death paying the debt that you owe to him. He gives himself fully to you. Now give yourself fully to him. That's what a love relationship is. It's not a duty, it's a love. And when that happens, the commandments here move from being something that you have to do to becoming something that you want to do. Because the duty part of the obeying has already been done for us by Jesus. And so now we want to obey his commands out of love. And this is the only way to change. Not by coercing the heart through laws and rules and shame and fear, but by melting it with grace. A grace that's personal for you. And that's the only thing that's going to be able to displace and push aside your other lovers that lay claim for your heart's attention. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that our whole understanding of the law is um, tainted by the world in which we live. It's tainted by hearts that are in rebellion against you, and so we see it as restrictions and negative things to hem us in and to ruin our fun. And yet, Lord, your word makes it very clear that your law is a beautiful picture of what we were made for. And I pray that you would teach us what it means to die to our, um, ourselves and to our own notions of life apart from you that, frankly, have never worked and never worked for anybody and we know never will. And that we would come alive to the truth that we were made for you and we were made for holiness and we were made for obeying all of these laws as the pinnacle of joy and satisfaction. Lord, teach us what it means to obey you out of love and not out of duty, not out of fear, not out of obligation, but out of love. For you are the God who has rescued us out of our Egypt and out of our slavery. In Jesus' name.